You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Equifax attracts more attention from plaintiffs, AGs, and Congress. Everyone else is on heightened alert for fraud and identity theft. MongoDB says users of its database process were not assigning passwords to administrative accounts. A Bluetooth-based attack vector, Blueborn, is described. Syringe pumps are found to be hackable. Bots serve more effective social media clickbait than human operators can. And Roman Seleznev gets 27 years after he cops a plea to hacking. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 12, 2017. Early and ambiguous comments about the Equifax breach pointed to an Apache Struts vulnerability, with the suggestion that the vulnerability the attackers exploited was CVE-2017-9805, a bug Apache fixed on September 5, 2017. But according to Contrast Security and other observers from the security industry, it now seems likelier that the hackers exploited CVE-2017-5638, a vulnerability that was patched in March of this year. The Equifax breach continues to draw litigation from the plaintiff's bar and regulatory inquests from state and federal government bodies. Congress plans to hold hearings. The company's share price dropped another 8% yesterday. In a kind of sector-wide collateral damage, Equifax's competitors TransUnion and Experian also took smaller hits to their stock late last week, but both now seem to be recovering. The Equifax breach is providing some tailwinds for another sector. Unsurprisingly, that sector is cybersecurity. Exchange-traded funds covering cyber have risen steadily since the breach was disclosed last Thursday. The persons unknown who demanded ransom from Equifax with a September 15th deadline now appear to be grifters unconnected with the hack. There's been no further public word on attribution. Turning to another incident, databases held for ransom, MongoDB believes the recent wave of ransom attacks on users of its database products have a common cause, failure to set passwords for administrative accounts. The vendor says it hopes to improve its customers' security awareness. Armis Labs has announced its discovery of a Bluetooth-based attack vector affecting major operating systems. They call it Blueborn. It's said to affect equally desktop, mobile, and IoT systems. In news of medical device vulnerabilities, ISC CERT has warned that MedFusion syringe pumps could be vulnerable to remote manipulation. 
mitigations are available. Zero Fox research suggests that bots may be better than humans at getting their marks to swallow social media clickbait. In an experiment, the bots consistently achieved higher conversion rates than the human social engineers they were compared against. Their experiment has attracted renewed interest as experts mull the increased weaponization of artificial intelligence by various bad actors. In addition to the CyberWire podcast, I am also the host of the Recorded Future podcast, where I have the pleasure of speaking with smart, interesting people on topics centered around threat intelligence. Mike Cole is one of those interesting people. He's an intelligence analyst, a reality TV personality, and an award-winning author of fantasy fiction. Here's a segment from our recent conversation. You are an award-winning and best-selling author, um, and in order to write compelling characters, you have to be able to put yourselves in the mindset of the characters that you're writing. And I wonder how that informs your abilities as an analyst, to be able to put yourself in the mindset of, uh, of your adversaries. I'm really glad you asked that question, um, because it's something I think that it's an issue, actually, I, I kind of campaign on. Um, especially in law enforcement and intelligence and in the military, and it applies to cyber. Look, cyber is an incredibly analytical field, right? We are attempting to interpret and understand machines and think like machines all the time. Uh, and that necessarily takes you out of a human mindset. And then you marry that to the law enforcement and intelligence field. You know what we call the people, our adversaries, in every police department and in almost every intelligence agency? We call them bad guys. And that's an incredibly judgmental position to take. It's necessary because you can't be worrying about your adversary's relationship with their mother if you're going to, you know, have to do the hard work of, of you know, prosecuting them or if you're in kinetic law enforcement, you know, literally putting cuffs on them and dragging them off. So it's, I'm not saying that that kind of snap judgment isn't necessary, but it is a roadblock and it does hold you back because behind those computers are people. And people have human motivations. Let me give you a corollary in fantasy fiction. Um, one that maybe a lot of your listeners will be familiar with is um, George R. R. Martin's famous series, A Song of Ice and Fire, which has been reinterpreted by HBO into the hit television show, A Game of Thrones, which I'm sure pretty much everybody listening to this podcast has seen. If, if they haven't, they're, they're living under a rock, I guess. Um, <laughs> So George R. R. Martin is famous for evoking George R. R. Martin. If you meet him, he's a you know older, overweight white guy, um, grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey. I think we can all safely say that he's not a dwarf like Tyrion Lannister, and that he's not a haughty, you know, noble queen like Cersei Lannister, right? Um, and yet he evokes these characters so convincingly that they resonate so realistically with an audience like it's it's amazing it's like he knows them and when people try to dissect how is it that he's able to do that so well as a writer and my answer is he's in, he's empathetic is that he's able to step outside his own preconceived notions and judgments of the world and into the shoes of someone who's utterly unlike them in a sympathetic manner and that enables him to understand their goals now think about that Obviously, that has utility in fiction because it enables us to make realistic characters. But it also has utility in law enforcement and intelligence because when you can step into the mindset of an adversary and understand their goals intimately, you'll be able to move one step ahead of them 
If you understand that the motivation of a hacker is to do something for the lulls or to do something because they're ideologically sympathetic to, to ISIS, but not the same as ISIS, well, I mean, that's a very, very different set of actions. Um, this is one of the things that always frustrated the heck out of me when I was working CT. I can't remember the name of the um, head of FBI CT who famously said to, to um, Congress uh, that uh, he looked for leadership skills, whatever that means, in his counterterrorism agents. Because a bombing was a bombing, a murder was a murder. He didn't think anybody needed to know Arabic or anything about Islam. And I, you know, I want to choke the guy um, <laughs> because it's, it, it, that's exactly the opposite of what's correct, right? Um, is that the bad guys that we're judging, they have motivations. And those motivations can serve as predictors for their actions. And if you marry a real knowledge of the technology that they're using and an understanding of what's making them tick and an empathetic and a sympathetic I say, yes, a sympathetic understanding of what makes them tick. I'm not saying you should betray your organization and assist a bad guy. What I'm saying is you should be able to understand what makes them tick because it will help you stay one step ahead of them. And one of the watchwords in fiction, one of the, of the aphorisms you'll always hear us saying is that everyone is the hero of their own story. That's Mike Cole. You can hear the rest of my interview with him on the Recorded Future podcast at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. And finally, Roman Selesnev has been sentenced after copying a guilty plea to U.S. federal charges of wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, and causing intentional damage to the protected computer. He'll get 27 years in Club Fed, and he's also been ordered to pay $170 million in restitution. This is believed to be the stiffest sentence a U.S. judge has handed down for a cybercrime. Mr. Selesnev admitted to being part of a carding ring and also to serving as a cashier, the guy who hoodwinked paycard transaction processors into disgorging a cool $9.4 million from what must have been a large number of ATMs. Mr. Selesnev was nabbed in Maldives as he was headed for the airport about to return from a vacation with his girlfriend. The U.S. Secret Service agents who made the collar delivered him to the continental U.S., stopping only for a quick appearance before a U.S. magistrate in the territory of Guam. The case has had an unusually high profile. Not only is it international, but Mr. Selesnev, a Russian citizen, is the son of Valery Selesnev, a big numero in the Russian Duma, Moscow's parliament. The Justice Department is pleased with its win. The Russians are not. They particularly object to the manner of Selesnev's apprehension. The Russian embassy in Washington had this to say on the matter. We continue to believe that the arrest of Russian citizen Roman Selesnev, who de facto was kidnapped on the territory of a third country, is unlawful. According to available information, Roman Selesnev's lawyer is planning to appeal against sentence. Another lesson to be learned here. If you're wanted by the law, don't vacation in places that have serviceable relations and extradition agreements with the particular long arm you're on the lam from. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Robert, uh, talking about industrial control systems, as we always do, and I, I was curious about this notion of deterrence. Um, when we have stories like uh, our suspicions that it's the Russians who've been rattling around inside Ukraine's uh, power grid system, um, how much of this is actually wanting to uh, break stuff, and how much of this is uh, folks like the Russians sort of showing the rest of the world hey, this is what we're capable of, uh, take notice of this? Yeah, great question. So when we look at these type of events, there's, from an international relations perspective, a lot of times there's multiple reasons to do things, right? There's no guaranteed they're only trying to show off or guaranteed they're only trying to do disruption. And understanding exactly what an adversary's intent is, is is one of the most difficult things in intelligence. That being said, we obviously can see that an adversary and, and all suspicions point uh, very, very keenly to Russia and Russian-based groups are just absolutely going and, and disrupting a large portion of Ukraine, not only from the power grid, but other sites. And a byproduct of that, whether they intended it or not, is absolutely a level of showing that they can do this and are willing to do this. And sometimes that second part, the willingness, is maybe even more important than the can. Can the United States take down infrastructure? Sure. Uh, but if we are never willing to do so, it may not actually pose a threat to other nations. And for that back and forth, it's very important to understand that it's got to be met with some sort of response. So if Russia is responsible, and, and really it doesn't even matter about attribution at this point, regardless of who is responsible, the fact that we have seen indiscriminate malware like WannaCry and the NotPietya case where it, it impacted uh, Ukraine, as well as an attack that took down a portion of the power grid for the first time in history uh, through a cyber attack both in 2015 and 2016, and that those things have been met with a, a silence. Absolutely no senior-level government officials, like White House-level officials, have come out and condemned uh, these attacks across two different administrations. And that is concerning because it sets 
not only sort of a standard and emboldens the attacker to think that they can get away with this, but also erodes at any sort of norm setting that we might have hoped to had in this space. So it's not only an aspect of potential deterrence, which I would agree in, and I think it's a very keen point, but it is also an aspect of writing the rules of the road to future to come of what is and isn't permissible. And quite frankly, uh, we really need to take a stand at indiscriminate attacks and attacks on civilian infrastructure because there's just too much harm to the global community in doing those. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.